0: If you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to John chapter 13. John 13, as we enter John 13, we are moving away from Jesus' public ministry as it's been highlighted in uh, in John's gospel there in chapters 1 through 12, and now we're moving into his more private moments with his disciples before he will be tried and crucified and then resurrected. Uh, not only are we transitioning in that way, but we're also really slowing down. The, the timeline slows down significantly once we hit chapter uh, 13, maybe even we could say chapter 11. Chapters one through uh, 11 could cover between two and, and three years possibly of Jesus's public ministry. But chapters 12 to 21 describe the events of roughly a week. And, and our, our, this section that we're heading into, the Upper Room Discourse, in chapters 13 to 17 may record only a few hours in the life of Jesus, and yet it takes up such a large portion of, of John's gospel, and so uh, these words are significant. As I was reading about these chapters, the exact evening that's described in these verses is actually debated, but certainly we find from the very first verse that it was during the Passover celebration uh, the disciples Uh, And Jesus have gathered, likely in the upper room, and the evening begins as Jesus does something astonishing, especially given who he is. Have you ever received VIP treatment? VIP meaning a very important person. Uh, Maybe you ended up with, uh, I don't know, some courtside tickets to a basketball game or admission maybe into a, a box or a loge. At a sporting event, you know, where you can eat all the food you want while you watch this sporting event. Uh, maybe you got uh, backstage passes at a concert, or you received some sort of special treatment at a at a fancy restaurant. You maybe you've flown first class, or you've been in one of these presidential suites in a in a hotel. And even if none of those things have ever happened to you, <laughs> it's easy to imagine what it would be like to have your name on a list that gets special treatment, the, that gets the best tea times at your favorite golf courses or the best treatment at some boutique shop. Uh, if we're all honest, there's, there's something attractive about being well thought of or admired or revered in a way that results in special treatment for us. For some, treatment uh, like this, special treatment is their normal experience. Such that when they don't receive special treatment, they say things like, don't you know who I am? (laughs) Which is a way of saying, do you realize that you're treating me the same way that you treat everybody else? And I'm special. I'm different than everybody else. Well, if anyone ever deserved VIP treatment, it was Jesus. If anyone should have been treated as unique and, and special, it was him. Uh, he deserved that. And in fact, in many ways, he did receive it. Not many days before this event, we, we read about how Jesus was honored and praised as a king. And such honor was, was his to rightly receive. And yet we find in our passage today that he actually laid aside this right to be revered in order to serve his friends and to give them an example of what true service looks like. As we take in this picture of Jesus washing the feet of, of his disciples, God's word comes to us with this command. As those cleansed by Jesus, let us follow him in love and humble service to one another. As those who are cleansed by Jesus, that cleansing picture is going to be seen clearly in these verses. As those cleansed by Jesus, let us follow him in love and humble service to one another. If you're not familiar with this passage, it is the account of Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. What is unique about this act of foot washing is that it's actually not the ultimate act of Jesus that cleanses us and teaches us about humble service. Set here in this context, in the final days before his crucifixion, it's clear that at its core, Jesus is giving his disciples not something in addition to the cross, but a a parable of the cross that becomes most clearly understood after his death and resurrection. I want to read a commentary from a paragraph, I want to read a paragraph from a commentary, (laughs) not a commentary from a paragraph, from St. Helen's Bishopgate that makes this clear and just kind of highlighted it for me. This is what it says. It's a little long, so I invite you to just pay attention to this. The foot washing, is an acted parable performed in the presence of the disciples that both explains the cross and is explained by the cross. The cross cleanses from and is itself the ultimate in service. Another vital aspect of the foot washing is that it shows the personal application of Jesus' death to his disciples. The cross must be central in the discipleship of every individual believer. In this way, the foot washing is an illustration of the truth of Jesus' metaphor about the grain of wheat. In chapter 12, verse 24, it applies the principles taught there universally to the individual disciples. Without the foot washing, the explanation of the achievement of Jesus' hour in chapter 12 remains on a grand universal scale. With it, we see the need for the cross to be appropriated by every believer individually. In addition, we see the importance of understanding Jesus' example for the life of the believers. There's a twin application in here of cleansing and service, of salvation and example. And those two applications, cleansing and service, salvation and example, help us understand what Jesus is saying here and then apply it to our daily walks with him. So as we take in this act of love, We're going to talk about the cleansing that Jesus provided, the example that Jesus gave, and we're also going to see the knowledge that Jesus had and the love and humility that Jesus displayed. And by God's grace, as we hear this, it will call us as those cleansed by Jesus. Let us follow him in love and humble service to one another. Let's hear God's word from John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. This first verse John 13, 1, not only forms the introduction to, to this act, but also even to the entire upper room discourse from chapter 13 through ver- chapter 17. John 13, beginning in verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. let us follow him in love and humble service to one another. As we look at this passage, I want to look at it in four different sections. Uh, notice first, first in specifically verses 1 through 3, the knowledge Jesus had. The knowledge Jesus had. So a few things that Jesus knew, uh, that he was aware of, that were a part of his understanding as he steps into this, this act of foot washing And into the days that are coming. And first what we see is that Jesus knew that his hour had come. Jesus knew that his hour had come. John's already made this clear. We've already tried to make this clear. But here the emphasis as to what the hour of of Jesus' glorification meant is a little bit different, isn't it? Did you notice in verse 1? When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Now, Jesus' hour certainly meant his crucifixion, which he says was his glorification, but here the emphasis is on the fact that Jesus was departing out of the world to return to his Father. What I think is being communicated here is an emphasis on, on the mission of Jesus, that he had come into the world for this specific purpose, and now he was leaving the world to return to the Father who had sent him, And that in this it's an indication that he had completed the task that he was given. That he is getting ready to return to the Father because he has done everything that is necessary for the salvation of his children. And yet we also know that this emphasis on leaving would cause great distress to the disciples. His departure would mean that they would, that he was no longer physically with them. So his instructions here in light of this have to do with how do we follow Jesus when he's not physically present with us. He knows that he's going back to the Father. He knows this, so he needs to help his disciples understand how do we live and follow Jesus after his hour, after he returns to the Father. Having said all this, let's just also be as simple as possible and say that knowing his hour meant that that Jesus knew he was about to die. Jesus knows that these are his last words. That's the simplest thing we could say about knowing that his hour had come. And just as we pay particular attention to the final words of someone before their death, (laughs) so too we pay attention to what Jesus says here. In fact, is there something, obviously the Holy Spirit bringing these things to John's mind, but was there something poignant about this moment where these words were, uh, were burned into John's memory? So Jesus knew that his hour had come. Related to this idea, note secondly that Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew who he was. He, he understood, as we have often called it, his heavenly origins, that he was the man from heaven sent from God. He had come from the Father and was going back to the Father. He knew that he was the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Messiah King, the Teacher, the Lord. Verse 3 says that he knew the Father had put all things into his hands, that he had been given all authority and all power to do as he pleased. And yet alongside this knowledge of his power, he also knew that he was the suffering servant. He knew that he had come to give glory to the Father, not only through signs and wonders, but also through his sacrificial death. His knowledge of his glory did not keep him from applying his knowledge of his mission, namely by sacrificing himself. So Jesus knows who he is. And just a third thing that he knows, Jesus knows who his disciples were. Jesus knew who his disciples were. He knew every single one of them. Verse two talks about Satan and, and, and Judas Iscariot, and it doesn't say anything in particular about Jesus's knowledge, but we see it in verse 11, that Jesus knew all of the facts of verse 2. He knew he was involved in this cosmic battle between good and evil and that behind all of the earthly opposition to him and his mission of salvation, that the devil was at work deceiving and blinding people. And specifically, he knew that this was happening to Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, he calls him. He knew that Judas would be the one who would betray him, who would actively work against him, allowing the authorities to find him and arrest him and then kill him. We're going to say a lot more about Judas next week, Lord willing, but we also might look forward to the end of this chapter and say that Jesus not only knew what Judas was going to do, he knew that Peter was going to betray him. John may even be linking these two characters, comparing and contrasting them with that that name Simon. Judas Iscariot is called Simon's son. And Peter is called Simon Peter. And what Peter would do in a blatant way, Jesus knew all of the disciples would do in a very general way. They would all desert him. They would all scatter. Jesus knew them. And Jesus' knowledge of who his disciples were shaped what he chose to teach them in the following chapters. But we should also note that Jesus' knowledge about his disciples didn't keep him from teaching them. He didn't give up on them knowing what they were about to do. And specifically, it didn't keep him from teaching them through this parable of foot washing. He didn't decide to do something different for them or say something different to them in light of what he knew about them. His care for them was not conditioned on anything in them. When he washed Judas's feet and then Peter's feet, and Thomas's feet and the rest of them, he knew all about their betrayal and their denial and their doubting and their scattering. He knew everything about it. In fact, their sinfulness was in part why he did it. He did it because he knew that they needed cleansed. Remember, it was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. This leads to our next point, which is the love and humility that Jesus displayed. The love and humility Jesus displayed. His love is stated clearly in verse one, and it's displayed in verses four to five, though we could say that his love is seen throughout this passage, it's seen throughout the upper room discourse, it's seen throughout his life, and his eventual death. But John has made a switch in this second half of the gospel, hasn't he? I think it began back with Lazarus and Mary and Martha in chapter 11, where he starts talking about the love that Jesus had for people. And in verse 1 of this chapter, we see it. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It's this idea that he loved them to the fullest extent. He loved them with everything that he had. I envision a long distance runner. You ever Run long, I know we've got some long distance runners in here and you've seen some people who run marathons and they cross the finish line and when they cross the finish line, right when they step across the finish line, they collapse with just complete exhaustion. Why? Because they've given everything that they have in that race. The parallel here to Jesus is not a parallel to weakness, but a parallel to giving absolutely everything that you have. We say in other sports that we're going to leave it all on the field, right? We don't look back and say, well, I could have done more. I could have tried harder. And regarding Jesus' love, he poured himself out completely. It was this act of washing his disciples' feet that pictured the pouring out of himself to death that was going to happen on the cross. He loved his disciples to the fullest extent. Do you notice how John slows things down even further in verses four and five as he describes each detail of Jesus's act of humble love? Let's just look at those verses again. So in light of everything that Jesus knew, he knew all of these things and in light of that, verse four, he rose from supper, laid aside, his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. We should note that foot washing was reserved for the lowest servants in the household. It's really no surprise that one of the disciples. Didn't take up the task. They would not have been thought, no one would have thought that they should, but it it does seem like there was some sort of oversight that there was not a servant present there to take care of this common ritual of hospitality. And so John is describing each deliberate act of Jesus again as if it's burned into his memory. He can still see Jesus doing all of these things. And it's, it's almost like if you had this experience where you're watching someone do something and you think, are they doing what I think that they're doing? Is this, is this actually happening? And it's almost like the, the disciples are watching and before they can step in and stop Jesus from what he's doing, he's already begun to wash their feet and they don't know what to do at this point. He's clothed in the garb of a servant, washing their feet. The picture of Christ's work again comes to the surface and we're reminded of those great words of, of Paul in Philippians 2. And, and I think just as John deliberately lists the actions of Christ, there we read uh, of each shocking act of Jesus that, that he took to, to humble himself for our salvation. Philippians 2, 6 through 8, it says, though he was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking what? The form of of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I wonder if we pause and and think about this, if we can see ourselves in the the place of the disciples, our dirty feet being washed by the, the one who created the dirt and the water, the one who created us. Can we be reminded that he's done even more than that too, that he's been lifted up on a cross so that he might wash away our sin with his blood. In light of that, this is what we see third. We see the cleansing Jesus provided. The cleansing Jesus provided, and we'll see this in verses six through 11 because it's in his conversation with Peter that we see this truth of the cleansing that Jesus provides. While all of his disciples surely felt that this situation was wrong, it's Peter who actually said something, which is not surprising, is it? <laughs> As Jesus approaches him, he asks Jesus if he is going to wash his disciples' feet, knowing full well that Jesus is coming to wash his feet. <laughs> and Jesus doesn't say yes, does he? He says, say, yes, Peter, I'm going to wash your feet. No, he says he acknowledges how difficult it is for Peter to understand what's going on. So he says... Peter, afterwards you're going to understand what this all means. After what? After the cross, after the resurrection. That's when this will all make sense to you, Peter. It's a good principle for life, isn't it? We might pause and say here that when life doesn't make sense or when Jesus seems to be acting a little strange in our lives that a trip to the foot of the cross and to the empty tomb may set things in order. It may help us to see things rightly. The crucifixion and the resurrection are a light that shines into all the dark seasons of our lives and explains them and helps us to understand them. We're people who live after the death and after the resurrection of Jesus, and we look back to that because it makes sense of our lives. This is why we come back to the gospel every week in our service, in just the order of our service. It's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's why we remember Jesus through various holidays throughout the year, why? Because his work of salvation helps us understand what he's doing in our lives. Especially when it makes no sense to us. The gospel and the the death and the resurrection clarify our confusion. But right now Peter doesn't understand. And so he refuses Jesus' offer of foot washing. No way, Lord. Uh, I heard one person say it's, it, it's this idea of, of never in a million years. It's, it's, this is never going to happen, Jesus. To which Jesus says, well, fine, if you want to refuse the foot washing, then you're refusing me. So Peter overcorrects, doesn't he? <laughs> fine, Jesus, then, then not just my feet, wash all of me to which Jesus says that all is necessary for those who have been cleansed is to have their feet washed periodically, as it were. What's going on here? As we think about this imagery of cleansing and the conversation between Peter and Jesus, we find that Jesus is teaching something amazing here about cleansing and about forgiveness. He's teaching two things. First, he he is declaring the fundamental cleansing of our salvation. That, let's call it that. He's declaring the fundamental cleansing of our salvation, this once-for-all act of forgiveness cleansing. Remember, this is a parable. What Jesus is doing here doesn't provide the cleansing, it pictures the cleansing. And the cleansing comes through his crucifixion. Jesus is helping his disciples to see that his coming death will accomplish the cleansing that we all need, not from dirt on our feet, but from the stain of sin that separates us from the Father. We might be reminded of the Day of Atonement described in Leviticus 16, where the atonement of the people's sins was accomplished through two goats. The sins of the people were transferred symbolically to these these goats and one was killed and the other was then sent outside the camp and they were reminded that through the shedding of blood, God would forgive their sins and forget their sins. And at the end of the instruction for that ritual, we read this in Leviticus 16.30, For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. If you've read through the Old Testament, you know that uncleanness and cleanness is something that the Jewish people were very concerned about. And woven throughout all the Jewish rites and holidays, this picture of being clean and being made clean was so important. But here Jesus speaks of a cleansing that comes and is final. It, that you don't need to keep being cleansed over and over again. It's a whole body, whole soul cleansing. And in this, he's, he's speaking of the cleansing that he offers because he is the perfect lamb of God. He comes to take our sins upon himself and to die in our place so that he can cleanse us completely. The author of Hebrews picks up on this in in chapter 9. We could read the whole chapter if we wanted to, but let me just read verses 11 to 14. He says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but how? By the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Do you hear all those words? Once for all, once. And it's an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve The living God. The disciples don't understand yet, but by God's grace, we see in the light of the cross that Jesus was announcing to them and to us that He is the only one who can cleanse us from our sins, and that He has done it by humbling Himself all the way to the point of dying on a cross as our substitute. And faith in Jesus brings this fundamental cleansing of salvation to our hearts and our souls. It's happened once for all. It's a fundamental cleansing. But we also see that Jesus is speaking about a continual cleansing. Let's call this the continual cleansing of our Christian life. The continual cleansing of our Christian life. This is found, I think, as Jesus responds to the request of Peter for Jesus to wash him completely. If you're a parent, you're totally going to understand this illustration. Because there are countless times, at least in my house, when I'm getting the kids ready for bed and I say, your feet are filthy. <laughs> we just gave you a bath. How did your feet get so dirty? It's because they don't wear shoes. I don't know why. But, uh, and so we send them to the bathtub to take a bath? No, just wash your feet before you, you put your pajamas on. In a culture with dirt roads and animals on the streets, you can imagine how dirty people's feet would get as they walked around in sandals. And that's why foot washing was a part of their hospitality. The parallel then is to the fact that Jesus has cleansed those who are his through this once-for-all act of salvation, this fundamental cleansing. And yet, we still get dirty every day. We still sin each day because we are still in the flesh as Joel prayed. We walk through life and we get dirty. So there's this continual cleansing that must happen in our lives through repentance, confession of sin. And it's not that we lose our salvation when we sin. That's not what Jesus is teaching here, obviously. But that we need to continually come to him for the cleansing from the sins that we commit each day. John knew this. That's why he wrote in 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's not a statement about salvation. That's a statement about having your feet washed. It's a statement about the continual cleansing that we need. So have you been cleansed by Christ through faith in his finished work on the cross? And if you have, do you have a regular practice of confessing your sins to the Father and receiving forgiveness through the Son? Again, this is what we seek to model each week in our prayer of confession, our assurance of forgiveness, that we have sinned throughout this past week and we must confess these things and receive forgiveness. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> if, we, if we do this, Christ assures us that his humble sacrifice brings us cleansing. But you don't have to wait till Sunday, do you? Allow Jesus to wash your feet every day as you confess your sins to him and rest in the forgiveness that he has purchased. Now, you remember that the death of Jesus in John 12, 23 through 26 that we looked at, we said it was not just the the means of salvation, but we said it was also our example to follow. Do you remember that? So here, this parable of the cross, we should not be surprised that it not only reveals the cleansing that, provi- that, that Jesus provides, but in our final point, it's, we notice the example Jesus gave. The example Jesus gave in verses 12 through 17. There's more deliberate description there in verse 12. When he had washed their feet, put on his outer garment, and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done for you? Jesus sits down and he says, do you get it? Do you understand what this means? And not just the cleansing piece. Having already explained the cleansing that he alone could bring them, he then tells them that he has also given them an example for how they are to treat one another. As I read that this time, I thought, I wonder if they expected this. Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet you also ought to wash my feet. I wonder if that's what they expected cuz I think they'd be fine with that. Jesus will wash your feet every day of the week if that's what you want us to do. Not so sure about washing each other's feet though. You don't know about that. That's that's a tough thing. He says that they are to wash one another's feet and so Jesus calls us to serve one another, to serve our brothers and sisters in Christ and beyond in humble and sacrificial ways. Notice how he connects it to their calling him teacher and Lord. He says, if you're going to do that, if you want to call me teacher and Lord, and you mean it, then you need to receive this teaching and obey what I am commanding right now. We don't get to just pick the parts of Jesus' teaching and lordship that we like and then reject others. We are called to obey all of his commands, including this one, to humble ourselves in radical service. To reject this teaching would be according to verse 16 to say that we're greater than Jesus, our master. It would be to exalt ourselves to a higher place than him and say, no, I'm above that. As we start to work this out, what does this kind of service look like? Let me highlight a few characteristics of it. First, there are no excuses that we can make. There are no excuses that we can make as far as serving people in this way. Let me give you some of the ones that I came up with, excuses that that I would like to make that Jesus says, no, that's not a valid excuse. There's nothing about who we are that could keep us from serving others. In other words, I can't say that I'm above this. Why? Well, if Jesus was willing to humble himself in this way, then none of us can say, well, don't you know who I am? Don't you realize that this is below me? There is no Christian exalted above Christ, the master. So none of us can claim that we are exempt from this based on our status. Now, we would all sit here and none of us would say, of course, I'm not greater than Christ, but there are times where we feel like serving others is below us. But none of us can say that. There's also nothing about the people that we are to love that will keep us from serving them. So not only can I not use myself as a, as a blockade while I'm exalted above this, but we also can't look at people and say, well, I can't serve those specific people. Remember, who was present? Whose feet did Jesus wash? Did he wash Judas's feet? He did. And remember that Jesus knew what Judas was going to do, but this knowledge of of their, their, their desertion, of the betrayal of the disciples was not an excuse that he used to keep himself from serving them. Therefore, there's no one that we can look at and say, I'm not going to serve them. Even the end result of our service is not a factor in whether or not we are allowed to serve them. The, the reception or rejection of our service has no bearing on it. Jesus washed Judas' feet. Did that change Judas's mind? No, he still betrayed him. And Jesus didn't withhold the washing of the feet because he knew that it wouldn't result in something, that Judas would still betray him, that he wouldn't get it. No, Christ served us all the way to the point of death while we were still his enemies. And so he calls us to love our enemies and serve them sacrificially. There's nothing, in, uh, uh, there's, there's nothing about who we are that could keep us from serving others. There's nothing about the people that we are to love that would keep us from serving them. There's no task that is too humble for us to take on in service to others. There is no task that is so low that we can say, you know what, that's too much. Because if foot washing was the lowest of the low when it came to serving others, And if it represented crucifixion, which was the most humiliating way to die, then there's absolutely nothing that we can say, that's too lowly for me to do. Because our savior went as low as possible. As we think about this kind of service to one another, we see that there are no excuses that we can make. And we also see that there's no glory for ourselves. There's no glory for ourselves in this. If this act by Jesus was to point to the cross, then we find that our acts of service to others are also supposed to point to the cross. As we serve others sacrificially in the name of Jesus, our hope is not our exaltation, but rather that God would be glorified, that the gospel would be displayed in real Tangible ways. No excuses that we can make. There's no glory for ourselves. But note finally of this service that there's no greater joy. Hmm. Not what I would expect. No greater joy. Look at verse 17. Verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Remember, look at this. Jesus is not calling us to follow him down some path of drudgery. Remember, why did he go to the cross? He went to the cross. He despised its shame. Why? Because of the joy that was set before him. Because there was joy on the other side of it. And while serving others is difficult, painful, self-denying, it is the path to true joy and happiness. As you serve your family and your neighbors, your your spouse and your your children, your fellow church members and strangers, you will find the joy of humble service. You'll find that death leads to life. There's a temptation here to list applications. <laughs> what does it mean to wash one another's feet? I think that's something that we can talk about during uh, our potluck gathering, if you like. Um, but as far as specific applications, let me just, I think what Paul says uh, is helpful. It's its simple, but I think it's straight to the point. What does he tell us? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind. its It's not specific applications that I can give you and say, here's what you need to do this week. No, it's it's adopting the mind of Christ by the power of His Spirit in us. It's realizing that I really do have no excuses that I can make. There really is no glory that I'm seeking except God's glory. There is no greater joy than serving others. It's, it's, it's having the mind of Christ to have it amongst ourselves so that as those cleansed by Jesus, we would follow Him in love and humble service to one another. Why? For His glory and for our joy. Let me invite you to spend a moment in silence and maybe allow the Spirit to to help us process what does it look like for me to follow Jesus in this way? What does it look like for me to take on the form of a servant as Jesus did and to serve others? So let's take a moment of silence and, and, and then I will pray for us. Father, we thank you for revealing Jesus to us through your word. We thank you for showing us the power that he has, that you have given all things into his hands, that he is from you, that he has done all that you called him to do. We thank you for revealing his love to us, a love that we have not earned, and that we do not deserve, but a love that pursues us, a love that that goes to the fullest extent all the way to death on a cross for our sakes. Lord, give us the mind of Christ. We walk through life so focused on ourselves, so focused on who we are and what we desire. And yet you call us to be concerned about the needs of others and to be willing to sacrifice ourselves for them. Lord, would you give us the mind of Christ? Would you help us to model him in this world for your glory and for our joy? We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.